Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Some of you remember back when preachers talked about preaching the old Jerusalem gospel or the old time Jerusalem gospel. Sometimes that phrase was used. I've heard that phrase a few times. I've read it many, many times. I read sermons or articles by preachers of the past, but When you hear that phrase, the question becomes, what were they talking about when they talked about preaching the old Jerusalem gospel? In some ways, the answer to that question is what we're going to be considering throughout Sunday evenings in the month of April as we emphasize and focus on the subject of baptism. And yes, there are five Sunday nights in April, but we chose this month for for a couple of reasons. One is because we are following a month in March that we focused on the cross And you cannot think about the cross without then naturally transitioning to a reaction to that. And so we're focusing this month on baptism. But also because, as you saw in the family newsletter, and you may see on the screens now, in the middle of the month, we do have uh, Brother Steve Gober coming from World Bible School. And so we really only have four of our typical uh, weeks as far as sermons or uh, singing night as well to think about our, our theme. But before we go back to what many preachers would talk about when they spoke about the old Jerusalem gospel, we want to go back a little bit further than some of them may have when they were preaching sermons on that topic. Because so often when they talked about the old Jerusalem gospel, they would begin in Acts chapter 2. And that's where we're going to end up tonight. I'll go ahead and tell you. We're going to end up there. But that's not where we want to begin. Instead, we want to go back just a little further. Back to the same city, but to something that happened before what we read about in Acts chapter 2. We're going to spend most of our time tonight in the scripture reading we spent some time in a moment ago from Luke chapter 24. If you want to have your Bibles open to that last chapter of the book of Luke. That chapter and the entire book of Luke, of course, ends following our scripture reading with Jesus ascending back into heaven and then the believers returning to Jerusalem with joy. You read about that in verses 50 through 52. But it's what Jesus told those followers before that happened, before he ascended to heaven, that we want to consider for a few moments. If you go to the last parts of other accounts of the gospel, you have a section of scripture we sometimes refer to as the Great Commission. You may recognize it from Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus began it by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he gave the commission when he said, Go therefore, based upon that authority, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he gave that great reassuring statement, And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
You may remember it also from near the end of Mark's account of the gospel, where he recorded in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, when he said, Go into all the world and proclaim, preach the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. But in our scripture reading a few moments ago from the latter verses of Luke chapter 24, you may have noticed those words aren't there. You don't have the same type of great commission. You don't have this the actual commission to go and make disciples or to go and baptize. Instead, there are some words from Jesus that he said were to be proclaimed beginning at Jerusalem. The setting, of course, that Jesus gives, or where we find Jesus, I should say, in Luke 24, if you glance back up at verse 36, was that he's with his disciples. He's eating with them. And he's proving himself to really be the risen one. Up in verse 36, they hadn't yet recognized that this really was him, but they thought they were seeing some kind of apparition, a ghost, a spirit. But then you remember that Jesus showed him his hands and his feet, which would have still borne those scars, those prints, if you will, from the nails that went into his body while he was on the cross. And when he showed them that, something began to change. But notice what you read if you glance back up at verse 41. After he had shown, shown them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved, verse 41 says, and were marveling. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? They still disbelieved, but they were marveling. There's something in their mind that's trying to register what's going on in the moment. And if we put ourselves in their shoes, we can understand that. It, it's easy for us to say, oh, I would have believed. But then we really put ourselves in their shoes. I think that statement would have also been true of many of us. We might still have had a level of disbelief, but been overwhelmed or marveling at what is going on. This transformation of information, if you will, that's going on. But then after that statement, Jesus gives what is one of the more interesting proofs found in all of the Bible. He eats with them. He eats regular food. Ghosts, spirits. Don't do that sort of thing. He eats that regular food. And that's enough to prove to so many of them that he really was the resurrected Lord. Combine that with his words. Combine that with the prints in his hands and his feet. And this ability to eat. And they begin to believe. H. Leo Bowles, many years ago, wrote about that statement. When they saw those proofs, he said, They are now to believe in the resurrection. It was no dream. No conjuring of a worried brain. No fancy of a grieved mind, no hallucination. They must believe, although so difficult to be convinced. But with their minds beginning now to consider and be convinced that this really is Jesus, this really is the one who was on that cross earlier, now who is raised, he gave them work to do. It began with a reminder, as we read in our scripture reading, that everything about him must be fulfilled and that would include not just his death, but also his defeating of death, his resurrection. But beyond that, and where we want to spend our time tonight, is that the message needed to go out. And he stated it clearly, it needed to go out beginning at or beginning from the city of Jerusalem. But the question becomes, what message? What was it that they were to proclaim, as Jesus said here in Luke 24, beginning at or beginning from Jerusalem? There were two things of that message. First of all, he said, they needed to proclaim 
repentance. The word here at its most basic level just means a change. But one writer, Zadiatus, adds that in the New Testament, he says, the word means a change of mind from evil to good or from worse to better. Now, that may seem obvious because most of us know this word repentance. But if we just go around saying the word repentance means change, well, folks, you can change from good to bad, can you not? The word repentance carries the idea of a change for the better. Again, from evil to good or from worse to something that is better. The word means that our mind is thinking about something wrong, but now is brought into line with what is right. And as we would know it from Scripture, what is right according to the word of God, because what he says is right or is righteous. But I also want us to understand tonight that the words you have here for repentance or uh, is a word that means that does not mean, excuse me, just feeling sorry for something. In fact, there is another Greek word that means to regret something. This word is much deeper than just regret. Now, certainly, repentance will often bring a certain level of regret, especially when we consider the consequences of sin, of our choices. But the word you have in Luke 24 is much deeper than that. It is a word that's a transformation of our way of thinking because we have been exposed to what is right It is a word that means we change our thinking because we now know God's will and God's way. And we change our thinking to match that which God has placed before us, we know, through his word. You know, sometimes repentance is is defined as a change of mind or a change of thinking that leads to a change in action. And that certainly is a good way of thinking about it. It's often pictured as the one who's going in one direction and now turns around and goes in exactly the opposite direction. That's the idea behind what Jesus says is to be proclaimed. It's the same word you have in Luke 24. Is the same word that John used in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8 when he told those listening to him to bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, don't just change your mind, but prove it by bearing fruit. Bear, make, a, make a difference. Make a change, a real change. It's more than just some mental exercise. It will bear itself out in the life that we live because our fruit, our works, will show themselves to be different. This is also the same word that Paul would help us to understand in Second Corinthians chapter 7. In verses 9 and 10 of that chapter, he wrote these words, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to something, that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I heard someone one time explain that last verse, verse 10, by saying basically if you want to contrast Worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief is just sad it got caught. That's all that grieves. Whereas godly grief, yes, there is a grief, there is a regret to it, but it leads to something. It leads to a change. It leads to salvation. And so, Jesus said, when he gave the commission as Luke records it, you go proclaim, you go preach repentance. A change that starts with the mind, but it leads to a different life. It leads to a different action. But that's not all Jesus said to proclaim. Because in the second place, he said to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Once one has repented, there's something that must happen. 
A person must repent. That's what Jesus said first. But then forgiveness is something that needs to be granted. And we need to praise God because the message that Jesus said that could be proclaimed was not just that people could repent and feel sorry or even change, but that forgiveness of sins could also be proclaimed. That something could be granted to them. But what does that phrase mean? Consider in reverse order. Consider the word sin first. The word sin comes from the word you've probably heard defined many times as missing the mark. But one writer actually says that if you define the word a little more broadly, it really means to miss the true goal and scope of life. But that raises the question, what's the mark? What's the goal? What's the scope? If if sin is to miss the mark or to miss the goal, then what is the mark? What's the goal? And the easy answer would be, well, it's it's sinlessness. It's perfection. And that certainly is in view. That's certainly true because we should all seek to be holy. We should all seek to be perfect. But I want to answer that question, what is the mark or what is the goal, with something that hopefully will resonate with us a little more. The mark that we are striving for, the goal of our life, is to live reflecting the full glory of God in all that we do. Now that would, if we were to do it perfectly, it would require sinlessness. But do you see how describing it as reflecting the glory of God should resonate in our lives even more? God created us for relationship. We are not striving to be sinless just to accomplish a goal. After all, if we're not careful, that could lead to selfishness, which in of itself is a sin. But it's not just just a goal. It's not just something we try to check off the list. It's to it's to reflect the relationship we have with a perfect heavenly father. That's why we strive for sinlessness or perfection. Or if you choose the word holiness, it becomes a relationship that we want to reflect because of how wonderful he is and how wonderfully he has treated us. And because of that, we want to draw others into that same relationship. Because of how glorious it is. But if that's the case, that sin is anything by word, by deed, by attitude, by action, that takes away from the mark of living a life that reflects in the the glory of God, then that is so dangerous. Because it can be done through doing things that take away from that glory. Sometimes we call those sins of commission. Or it can be done by refusing to or failing to do things that do reflect that glory. We sometimes call those sins of omission. But that's what sin is. And may I remind us that Paul would connect those two things in Romans 3.23. When he wrote that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thus the connection. So knowing what sin is, what does forgiveness mean? Once someone realizes what this is, that that I'm not reflecting the glory of God, how do we then explain forgiveness? Or as some translations have it, the word remission. To help us understand that you may want to turn to this other passage, you may just want to mark it in your mind. But you may want to turn to Romans chapter 3. Because I want to show you a passage that, that will help us to understand what the word forgiveness in Luke 24 does not mean. In Romans chapter 3. Verses 24 and 25, Paul is writing about the remedy for sin, but he's reminding his readers of those under the Old Testament law. And he wrote again, beginning of verse 24, that they are all justified 
by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. That phrase, passed over, in verse 25, is translated remission or remitted in some translations. But that can give the wrong impression. The original word there in Romans 3 means literally to, to let something pass or to tolerate something. Paul was saying in that context that those under the Old Testament law, their sins were passed over until something greater came. Of course, we know that to be Jesus the Christ, the perfect sacrifice. There was a way for those under the Old Testament law to be saved. But their sins could not fully be taken away. They could not fully be atoned for until the perfect sacrifice did that. That's why he references Jesus being the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, I mentioned that's not what you see in Luke 24. That's not the word found in Luke 24. When Jesus spoke in Luke 24... And said that repentance and forgiveness or remission of sins should be proclaimed beginning in Jerusalem. He used a different word. And it's a more beautiful word. The word used in Luke 24 literally means to stand away from. And it carries the idea of a release or a liberation from something. This is not something anymore, Jesus is saying, that God just passes over. That God just tolerates until something better comes. Jesus is saying we have a different message to proclaim. He is saying that when one repents, that now what we can proclaim is not that God just passes over sin. Or not that God just tolerates sin, but that God stands away from our sin and releases us from it. What a glorious message that is. That's the message. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. But somebody says, you know, about 15 minutes ago, you must have been wasting a whole lot of breath because you put a slide up there and said all month we're talking about baptism. And you've talked about repentance. And you've talked about forgiveness of sins, remission of sins. But I've looked at Luke 24. I read it a few moments ago when we read it together. read off the screens or from my Bible and I've got it open in my lap in front of me. I'm looking at it again. I don't see that word anywhere. Did you just need a sermon to fill in tonight or something? Or did did you just forget this was about baptism? Except that if you keep reading in the context, while the word baptism is not there, it's time to get to the old Jerusalem gospel. Because Jesus said, after what they were to proclaim, beginning from Jerusalem, the end of verse 47, you are witnesses of these things, and then notice verse 49 that we did not read. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city. What city? Beginning from where? Jerusalem. But stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. Here's the easiest question I'll ask all night long. Who wrote the book of Luke? Anybody got a guess? This is not a trick question, I promise. Luke, thank you, Brother Neil. Neil's been studying for his sermon tonight. Luke wrote the book of Luke. All we have to find is where a message of remission and forgiveness of sins is proclaimed beginning from Jerusalem. 
And do you not find it interesting that where we find that is Acts chapter 2, which is also penned by Dr. Luke. Turn to Acts chapter 2. And I want you to see where this message is proclaimed. Acts 2 begins, and we're going to just summarize some things in the chapter to get to our point tonight. But Acts 2 begins by telling us that all the believers were together in one place. And verse 5 makes it clear to us they are in the city of Jerusalem. So they're in the right place. And if you remember back in Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus said that they received power from on high. Does that not happen in Acts chapter 2? When you have that great rushing wind, when those tongues of fire are above the, the heads of those who are preaching, the apostles, on that day. So we know it's the right place. We know it's the right event, if you will. And verse 14 of Acts chapter 2 tells us that we're about to read the words of Peter, that he would speak, but that others spoke on that day as well, the other apostles. And so we're in the right location. We're in the right event, if you will. And we're also hearing words, or about to hear words, from one who had been told to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. And we also know that Peter's message, if you read the sermon he proclaims, is centered on Jesus himself. Jesus is the absolute focal point of everything Peter says in Acts chapter 2. So, it's a message in the right place, at the right event, by the right person, and from the authority of, or in the name of, Jesus Christ. And you remember, if you know Acts 2 very well, that Peter proclaims the death and the resurrection of Jesus... And a number of people on that day were convicted and convinced that Jesus really was the Messiah. And that they had been the ones to put him to death, to put him on the cross. And you remember their famous question, I hope, found all the way down in verse 37. What shall we do? Now think about what Jesus had said to preach in Luke chapter 24. Repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the nations in the name of Jesus. Peter is asked... What shall we do? And what's his answer? Verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, all the nations, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Jesus in Luke 24 did not specifically mention baptism. You don't see that word found in Luke 24. I understand that. He, he, he mentioned repentance. And he mentioned forgiveness of sins or remission of sins. So the question becomes, is Peter just making this up? Was Peter just adding something to what Jesus wanted proclaimed? Not in the least. Because you have to tie one other passage together. And you remember, hopefully, Matthew chapter 16. Where Jesus looked at Peter specifically. And said to him that he was going to build his church. And then said to Peter, you are Peter. And upon this rock, what rock? The statement that Jesus is the Son of God. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, or Hades, will not prevail against it. And I will give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of God. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, literally. And whatever you loose on earth, literally, will have already been loosed in heaven. What did Jesus mean? Peter, I'm giving you the keys to open the door. Peter, Luke 24, Proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. So when you come to Acts chapter 2, what is Peter doing? All he is doing is telling us the where of forgiveness of sins. That's all he's doing. That's the entire meaning of baptism in Acts 2 and verse 38. That it is the where 
of forgiveness of sins. So when you put that together, what did Peter tell them on the day of Pentecost? Repent. Change your mind. And let your life show that change through your actions. And let every one of you be baptized, literally immersed. Not so that God would just look past your sins any longer. Not just so that God would tolerate sins any longer until something better came along. But so that God would stand away from your sins and liberate you once and for all from them. That message may be the old Jerusalem gospel, but ladies and gentlemen, it's still the gospel. Repent and let every one of you be baptized so that God will stand away from your sins and you are liberated from them. Oh, but I might offend somebody if I said that. Oh, not everybody thinks that way. Oh, but that's not popular with my my religious friends and neighbors. You know, maybe those things are true. In fact, I know they are true with so many people. But that's the message that in Luke 24, Jesus did not say, keep to yourselves beginning in Jerusalem. He said, proclaim this beginning in Jerusalem. Tonight, aren't you thankful that Peter proclaimed that message beginning in Jerusalem? And tonight, aren't you thankful that untold and unnamed people, beginning in Acts 8, proclaimed the word wherever they went? And tonight, aren't you thankful that someone taught you? Two questions tonight, and the lesson will be yours. First, if you have never repented, changed your mind, and been baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, why would you wait? Don't you want those sins, those things that separate you from God, don't you want those things taken away? Why would you wait to do that? Second question, if you have been baptized, if you are a Christian, are you proclaiming that message that began all the way back in Jerusalem? It hasn't changed. The way we present it may change. We may use PowerPoint now. We may use the Internet now. We may use all types of things now. But the message itself, we may use cell phones now. The, the, the message itself has not changed. Are you proclaiming that message? And are you living in such a way that shows, I have been liberated from my sins because I was washed in the blood of the risen Lord. Tonight, whatever your need is, if you need to become a Christian or if you need to return in faithfulness, will you come while we stand and sing to encourage you?